So what I'm going to try to do in the next half hour or so is talk a little bit about the challenge of profound rest or deep repose and how it is related to the activities of friendship and contemplation and how those activities can qualify or characterize our work relationships with other people. A lot of the interesting, very honest, and very open things that you all shared were related to the vulnerabilities that we each experience about our productivity, our success, our sense of our own story, our capacity to love ourselves, and to think about the worth and value of our lives. And achieving a kind of deep inner sense of self-love is very complicated. It's very connected to happiness. It's not the only ingredient to happiness, but it's a very important dimension of happiness. And happiness and self-love are achieved in large part through various kinds of activities. Part of the complication of being a human being, the complexity of being a human being, is that we achieve happiness through more than one kind of activity. And I want to talk a little bit about three fundamental activities that contribute to our happiness and how they're interrelated. One being friendship, another being, which I'm putting my little chart here, in the practical intellect, friendship is a certain way is tended to by the practical moral virtue of prudence, how to pursue friendships that are stabilizing, enduring, fulfilling, loving, virtuous, and another activity which is contemplation, which is about pursuing a kind of deeper gaze on reality that doesn't really have to do with transforming the world, but appreciating reality. Loving reality, admiring it, being fulfilled by the very givenness of things. And then art, or work. Work is really a form of art where we transform the world, or we transform something about the world with other people. Um, there's an homage in my aspiration here to Joseph Pieper's little book, Leisure, the Basis of Culture, which is a, very much a work worth reading about the idea of how what I would call profound rest remakes us. All of us are driven people, and if you're, for example, in a university or if you're in a professional job, you're constantly striving to, uh, also if you're in the priesthood or a religious life, you're constantly striving to achieve certain forms of excellence, to maintain them, to grow in them. But you're also, in a certain way, um, Required, if you want to have a deep personal integration, to find places of profound repose. Places where you touch an absolute that gives you a kind of a inner freedom, a capacity to love yourself, a capacity to rest. Uh, Augustine has this theme, of course, on the first pages of the Confessions. Our hearts are restless to lay us in thee. And that signifies in Western culture this deep theme in the philosophical tradition about the restlessness of the human heart, the ailments of it. Pascal, who is an Augustinian, talks about our difficulty with inundating our life with distractions rather than profound places of rest. 
course, we live in a culture that is so powerful in providing us with mesmerizing distractions, technological ones. Primarily, they usually are found in a small, rectangular-shaped object that is in our vest pocket. <laughs> and, um, but there are many others, and in the culture of consumption, where you can push a button and have something delivered to you by Amazon, maybe under the good auspices of reading the books that are piling up on your desk, but many other things arriving through your Spotify account to listen to or whatever. You have all kinds of ways that we can, in many ways that are understandable, express curiosity, but also uh, prohibit maybe deeper rest. So you're like this deep spiritual animal looking for profound fulfillment, wading in an ocean of superficiality. Because it's easy. It's the easy low-hanging fruit that allows you to procrastinate rather than go deeper. There's a time to, to take the more shallow forms of repose, but what about the deep forms of repose? So the first thing I want to talk about is Aristotle on friendship. Now Aristotle famously distinguishes between friendships of utility and friendships, as he says, according to virtue. The friendship of utility is not necessarily evil, but it's not, it's not really a friendship where you care fundamentally about the, out the good of the other or wish to dwell with the other because of delight in who the person is. The friendship of utility is sometimes necessary. We're trying to find the same bus together. We're both lost in some small town in Europe, in speaking a language we don't understand, trying to find the bus to get back to the right place, slightly terrified we're going to spend the night in this village, and we're trying to find the bus together. It's useful to help each other. It's not wrong, but it's not profound either. And after we get on the bus and you know, find our way, there's a relief, and maybe, maybe we have a taco together, but that's it. <laughs> There's also the danger that work relationships, or even relationships in the university, or in religious life, or in the most personal settings, can become primarily relationships of utility. That becomes corrupting. When the other person is there really as a kind of means by which I can advance towards my own goals, and the person is instrumentalized. So of course, utilitarian friendships can become relationships of instrumentalization. And there are very subtle forms of this that we can um, uh, embark on without very great self-knowledge. Where, for example, my brethren in religious life exist so that I can make use of them for the convenience of my life in some way or another. It's a kind of moral laziness that can sink in. It happens in families where children are useful to their parents for their own sense of self-worth, and vice versa. Okay. But enough moralization. Um, friendships of, according to virtue for Aristotle, consist basically in three things. The first is that you have come under the spiritual attraction to the delightful goodness of the other person in his or her qualities. So you have learned that the other person has qualities that you delight in. 
And you, Aristotle actually says this, it's very interesting, it sounds quasi-Christian, you want the good of the other person for his or her sake. You want to see them flourish according to the norms of their own nature. So to really care about another person for his or her own sake is to want to see him or her do well. It's a great examination of conscience. Okay, so love and friendship is wanting to see the other person flourish. But it's also, for Aristotle, this is still part of the first aspect. It's wanting to be with the other person precisely because you delight in who they are. This is where you start to see the seeds of profound rest. Why do we seek friendship with others? Well, in a certain way, because they are good. There's a goodness about them. It could be qualities of their mind. It could be qualities of their generosity of heart. It could be their honesty. It could be their wit. It could be their creativity. There's a whole catalog. But there's some aspects of their person we delight in. And we, we delight in being with them. And we find repose. And on this first note, there's also a way in which in being enjoyed, well, the second, I suppose I should transition here. The second aspect is that the delight and repose is mutual. You can really enjoy and appreciate another person, and they might not actually feel any kind of deep friendship of the same sort reciprocally. It's not a drama, but it happens. But when the two people, or several people, feel mutual delight in each other's company, then what happens is, in loving the other person, or caring about the other person, his or her good, appreciating him or her, and feeling that uh, sense of care or appreciation back, I learn to love myself. Now, I shouldn't love myself only if someone cares or loves me, but it is a virtuous rather than a vicious circle. So that when I care about another person, it helps them love themselves. When they care about me, it helps me love myself. And in friendship, in the deep, stable, mature, good friendships of human life, which, for example, you can experience in very profound ways in religious life, or in professional life, or in married life. In those deep, enduring friendships, we do learn how to, to give to the other person for his or her own sake, but also to love ourselves, and to endure, uh, to enjoy enduring, stable friendships that learn, that teach us how to give, how to receive, and how to experience the stability of profound love. And so, like, there's an appreciation of our own character as we learn to, to give of ourselves and to love ourselves, just as the other person does. And so, there's a deep, um, dynamic repose in friendship. The third thing, loving the other person for themselves, enjoying the other person for themselves, mutual love. The third thing is shared love. And Aristotle says here there can be a really great diversity of ways that friends share lives together. He thinks the highest form of life, Aristotle was married twice, his first wife died, he remarried, but he thinks the highest form of life is actually, he says, the pursuit of the truth, philosophical pursuit of the truth of another person. It's interesting, it's almost like the highest, it's something proximate to a religious or Catholic sentiment in a noble pagan philosopher, that these, that it, with the, those with whom he seeks to serve the truth, he has the best and deepest friendships. Of course he thinks marriage is another kind of friendship, and it could be that you can have both these things in a marriage, but if you think about what's proper specifically in marriage is, people seek to have children together and raise them together, and that's an incredibly noble thing to have in common, the education of children and the, the care of their welfare. 
Work relationships are also possible occasions of deeper friendships. If people share a common project, if they have a deep and sustained vision of what they're doing in a common um, form of work or life of work. Okay, but the thing is that what we have in common with our friends does in some way ennoble us more or less. It's possible to have a deep friendship of a kind with the people in your bowling league. And you come together once a week and you bowl. <laughs> and you drink very distasteful American beer. <laughs> and we wouldn't want to devalue that, but it isn't really the most elevated form of friendship to contrast with the Greek philosophers. Or the married couple. So, friendship is a place of rest, but it's also a place of potential challenge to go higher, to deepen the relationship. Now, in the Christian point of view, obviously, in a certain way, what is the deepest thing two people can have in common? is Christ, shared life in Christ. The church is, at its heart, a communion of friendships, of people who live in Christ together, and they share the life of grace with one another. And they can share the life of apostolic preaching or common prayer. Uh, so what you have in common with others is the bond of the Holy Spirit, which is a very amazing thing. When we say with Aquinas, grace doesn't destroy nature. The, the friendships are natural. Friendship is natural, but what if grace descends into friendship and places in the heart of the bond of friendship the shared life of the Holy Spirit? That is what happens in the church. It's amazing. Contemplation. Contemplation is about our orientation toward the truth, but often when we think about contemplation, we think immediately either of the deep study of the truth in, say, a classroom setting, or reading a book quietly in our cell or our, our room, or we think about the contemplation of the truth in the faith, in um, the quiet of a, of a, of a church, in the morning after Mass, praying with the ray of sunlight coming in the window. These scenes we experience regularly in this beautiful city. And those are, of course, very real, deep, abiding forms of contemplation. But contemplation is actually a very flexible concept, which has a wonderful range of application. And I want to just sketch a few options here, ways to contemplate. To take something that's... So, let me just first give a general definition. Contemplation is an act of the mind by which we intuitively gaze upon some aspect of reality. And typically it either precedes our reflective deliberation or it succeeds it, coming either before or after deep rational reflection. It's a gazing into the truth. And it's a gazing that's intuitive that happens either before or at the fruit, as the fruit of reasoning. Aquinas sometimes calls it judicia, judgment, seeing into things, intellectus, insight. Okay, so think about walking around. It's a little bit of an artificial modern situation, but it's not an entirely unwholesome one. Think about walk, wandering around a beautiful a museum of beautiful art objects and looking at paintings. And what do people do when they're in these museums? They stop and they just look at the canvas, and they gaze. It's an artistic con contemplation. And of course, we're thinking about what's the perspective, what is the person 
trying to teach us, or maybe we're just delighting in the colors, or maybe we're thinking about the perspective on life and are feeling the emotions that come from the canvas, but we're gazing into the canvas and we're contemplating. I found artistic, learned artistic habit. And we can do this with the other arts. You can contemplate the architecture of a beautiful building. You can contemplate statuary. You can contemplate the characters in a novel. You're reading War and Peace. You thought it might be overrated. You decided that it was underrated. But you're contemplating the characters' dramatic lives. You can contemplate in a way why you're listening to music. It's more emotional, but like you have Mozart going on in the office. You're trying to elevate your, your artistic taste, so you play some Mozart instead of Eminem. And you're, you're listening to it. There's a kind of gentle affective contemplation. Anyway, think about another example, affective contemplation. That's more the, the contemplation comes through love. You, your good friend from college falls in love, and you meet the young lady he's fallen in love with, and he has this sad, somewhat silly, but rather touching, doting gaze that is characterizing him now, where he's just staring at this person. Hopefully that lasts a long time. It might not always be quite that way. But the thing is, what's nice is, because the person's polarized by love and affective, emotional appreciation, their mind is gazing on the other person. There's a more mm, gentle, less dramatic way in which we learn to gaze on our friends, um, maybe not romantically, maybe just in a friendly way, and think about them. You think about who are the people you know best, your friends. You know, there's a friend who you say, well, I was thinking of asking X or Y person to do this, but actually I know if I ask him to do that, he's not going to say this, he's not going to say that, because I know the person, because I appreciate them, I've studied them. Why do we study people? Because we care about them. There's a kind of intellectual gaze that we acquire, contemplation into their character. There's obviously the contemplation of natural beauty. Emmanuel Kant talks about the sublimity of the natural world, the, the sort of anticipations of the horizon of the infinite. You stand on the mountaintop and look out into the sublime infinity of the horizon. And you can go on Pinterest and find pictures almost better than reality, <laughs> where the sublime beauty of the natural world is depicted for you, and now it's at a virtual remove, and so it's not as contemplative as the reality. The reality is often messier to get involved with. When you're standing on the mountain, it's cold. The rain is pouring down in front of your coat. The wind is, is buffering. You can hardly hear the person next to you. And it's, you know, your feet hurt because you had to walk for three hours to get up there. And you're hungry. But you've earned, in a certain way, a real raw experience of something sublime. And you gaze out at it with deep appreciation. You contemplate. There's the contemplation of the truth that comes as a fruit of meditation. You read a book and you think about the depth of insight that Thomas Aquinas has actually into what human free acts are. And you think, it's not overrated. He actually sees how it really is. There was something worth it in studying Aquinas on a human free act. I get it. I know the difference between an intention and a choice. Wow. And it characterizes then your way of seeing reality. 
Or you think about Nehemiah Aquinas and divine simplicity, and you think, oh, that's, that's rather significant, what he just demonstrated. You contemplate God anew, philosophically, because you read something. And of course, there's a deeper spiritual contemplation that can come about partly through philosophical thinking about God, but especially through spiritual contact with God in faith. To contemplate the Holy Trinity, to be sustained by faith, hope, and love in a kind of loving gaze, which we can experience in a banal way. I mean, banal is not quite fair, but in a great ordinary way, through the habits of faith. Anyone can contemplate God who has the faith in a sort of simple, dark, modest, humble way. And then there's the moments where God touches the mind and draws the heart up and enlightens us more, or enlivens us more by grace to be held, suspended, engaging on the mystery of God in a more profound way. Now, all of this can, in a way, be difficult. All these forms of contemplation are difficult. They're difficult goods, but they're, they're places we get profound rest. Earned rest, maybe, but profound rest. And the problem is that the surrogates are so easily available to just keep looking at the Facebook account, to watch television, and I haven't done it myself, but I think there's a whole bunch of these things they call like these uh, high-tech video games. I had students at undergraduate 10 years ago. I think a lot of them told me they played two or three hours of video games today. But if you think about that, you say, well, that's very decadent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what is going on there? There's, a, there's an animal that wants to contemplate. The problem is the, 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 the weight of being an animal and living with senses, and the difficulty of elevating sensitive life into the life of contemplation, so the contemplation goes down into the senses. And we're sort of in this drama of trying to live out our desires for fulfillment and profound rest in an, in an animal body that's often distracted, and I don't mean that the body is the problem, I just mean the integration is the problem. <coughs> Let me just finish by talking for a moment about work. In work, it's almost the opposite of friendship and contemplation. In friendship and contemplation, you start with something that comes from another, that you didn't give being to, that doesn't come from us or our efficiency or our ingenuity or our creativity. You know, can you imagine talking to your best friend or one of your best friends and saying, you know, what's most important about you as a friend is that I gave you existence through my own creativity. I really feel like what I creativity brings to friendship is the most important thing. Right? We, you know, that's obviously completely crazy. There are people who approach that spectrum um, in work relationships. But that's slightly sociopathological. <laughs> and it's not metaphysically realistic. Every human being has really deep um, qualities that every other human being doesn't have. Some of them are hidden. Some of them are marred by character vices. There are a lot of very flawed people. All of us have some flaws. All of us have some deep flaws and some profound forms of disordered self-love. Consequence of original sin. But all human beings do have important qualities that are in some way unique expressions of the Imago Dei. Even though we all have the same human nature, 
it takes on a different mode in each of us. And there's something in each of us that's not in the others that can be appreciated for its, as it were, unique expression of the beauty of spiritual being, spiritual personhood. There's a, there's a unique expression of spiritual personhood in each of us. And that's just a given. It's not something that you and I generate in one another. Okay. Similarly, of course, contemplation. If you're contemplating the art in the... If you're not the artist, which most of us are in this case, and you're in a museum, the paintings are given to you by someone else's creativity. But likewise, the larger, metaphorically speaking, painting of the universe that we gaze out on, the view from the mountaintop, that's all that's given. But in, in art and in work... It's different. You take the raw materials of the world, you take the world around you as raw materials, and you generate something creative. And so actually, it's both, in a way, more engaging, because you're transforming reality by your own active you know, gifts. You're writing a paper for an exam, or you're producing something, a memo in the office, that's actually you know, important, substantial, that will have an effect. Um, that's coming from you. It's coming from you ordering your thoughts, from you taking leadership, from you seeing what needs to be done, from you having a vision of the truth, from you being able to artistically express yourself, from you being able to convince other people and engage with other people reasonably and profoundly. Right? And that's an expression of your own inner dynamism and energy and creativity, productivity. And so we feel ourselves very much at, engaged in those activities. But... This is where there can be imbalances. Work is a very important part of the way we express ourselves, but it's also a place of great risks. One risk that's obvious is we're totally submerged in the vision of someone else. I don't know if anyone here has ever had the honor of working in fast food services. I worked in Burger King once. <laughs> a Burger King, those people are very intelligent capitalists. They have scripted every almost physical movement that the employee is capable of and have scripted 35 hours of paid work so they don't have to give you insurance and manage everything you do so as to produce the greatest efficient outcome with the least um, danger of a stupid employee making a mistake. So you're basically a hired robot acting in a very efficient form. I mean, that's not, nothing against Burger King, but I mean, they're just imitating a common model. Now, there's not a lot of vision there. Now, you can offer it up to God. If you're a Christian, you can think about like the way that this is participating in asceticism and you're offering this as well. But like, obviously, your, your creative forces are reduced. But there's another danger. The other That's a spectrum example. The other end of the spectrum is the spectrum of the entrepreneurial visionary of the person who's somehow massively successful or autonomous, who gets caught up in their work because it's everything. They're so able freely to do what they envisage that it's their whole life. You have a very successful football coach who starts his one mini Super Bowl, starts sleeping at the stadium. Right. So it's understandable because it's all-consuming success, but it also begins to eat at the other goods, contemplation, friendship. Or at least it takes over the, con the conditions of possibility of those. So everything you contemplate, everything you have as friendships in life are part of the work. Okay. 
In between those two extremes, there's the place where you find some degree, and it's a little different for all of us, just depending on life circumstances and bad and good luck, the amount of work, the, whether we harness our talents, whether we do the kind of things Ben was talking about, trying to move up from you know level five of achievement to level six. But also, there just can be fortune involved. There's the degree in which we really feel like our work is a place where contributing, or maybe just simply um, receiving a designation of what we're contributing, okay? And there's a range. You want to obviously be trying to do kind of the kinds of work that are ennobling, that allow you to activate your dynamic best self, your energies. But what I just wanted to touch on is the way any kind of work, however meaningful qua work, as work, it um, can be colored by these other two facets, friendship and contemplation. And I'll just finish by talking about each of them, and then I'll just open for a few minutes Q&A. Regarding friendship, Aristotle, Aquinas asks, what is the form of justice closest to charity you owe any stranger? Any stranger. Justice is, what, is the virtue that pertains to what you owe another in virtue of their dignity. And what is, that you, what is it you owe each one in justice that is the most proximate to real charity, affectionate friendship? For Aquinas, that's charity is affectionate friendship in Christ. It's this affability. Affability. So one of the things that we can bring into the life of our ordinary productivity, whether it's in a university, whether it's a work location, whether it's a common project, is to bring the friendliness of appreciation of the uniqueness of each human person. And Aquinas says it's not friendship. Affability is not friendship, but it's the closest disposition to friendship. It's like the place where justice moves toward love. And so by living in affability with our colleagues in the university, in a work setting, or whatnot, we're creating a work environment that is one open to more profound repose of friendship. Obviously that presupposes is justice. If there's not justice in the workplace, well, you can't have affability. The injustice undermines the conditions for affability and friendship. Justice creates the possibilities for affability, and the affability creates the possibility of genuine interpersonal friendship. So seeking to be affable, even with the people to whom we don't feel a particular friendship calling. It's a, it's a virtue you cultivate. There's an intelligence to it. Learning to be friendly. It's not the same thing as being friends, but being friendly. The second thing is bringing the vision, the contemplative vision of life to your work. Some forms of work that's easier than others. But every form of work is a form of work where we can bring an appreciation of beauty, an appreciation of beauty of the world, and in some discreet way, possibly, maybe less discreet, in the line of work many of us are in, a sense of the beauty of God. The beauty of the, beauty of the, of the natural world, the beauty of the artistic world, the beauty of God. This sort of celebration of the beauty of the world and the contemplation of the truth and the consolation of the truth. That's not something per se you may, may be asked to provide in your work, 
But it is something that if you pursue as a good for your own person, will shine through to other people in your work. If I'm a truth-centered person, or if I'm a beauty-centered person, it will affect people around me, even if it's not the per precise subject matter we share in our common workspace. So contemplation changes the kinds of people we are. It affects what we are as persons, and it touches upon our the way we work or engage in relationships with others. An obvious example of this is in religious life, where all religious are meant to be, in some way, first and foremost, contemplatives, friends of God, trying to find the mystery of God. And this is supposed to invade their work. Obviously, an examination of conscience for every Catholic religious is, is my work being done in a way that is, in some way, open to the contemplation of God, or closing me out from it? But it's actually just a human question. And it's a wonderful horizon to think about. They say of King of the Duan, whose cause for beatification is exam being examined, maybe he's now been beatified, I can't remember, Belgian king in the 20th century. He tried to think of God every 20 minutes. He was seeing diplomats all day, political people, ribbon-cutting ceremonies, all that stuff. Trying to think of God every 20 minutes. It's really hard to do. I've tried to think about that in terms of examination of conscience as a Catholic priest, religious, and it's hard. But what an interesting way to think about punctuating your life with turning in the faith toward mindfulness of God, intuitive contemplation of God. But there's other ways of thinking about that with other persons, and with beauty, and with truth. Well, anyway, those are some thoughts about the relative importance of trying to integrate these aspects. And what integrates them is, of course, prudential wisdom. The person who's wise can, can, can seek all these things co-simultaneously in an integrated way. To seek to be a person who is speculatively truth-centered, who's contemplative, to seek to be a person who is amicable, who has an intelligence for seeking friendships, sustaining friendships, seeking to be a productive, creative, visionary person in one's work, in one's study, in one's self-expression, and in one's industry. But to do all these things without suffocating the one, each one in the name of the other, and doing it in ways that are mutually harmonized, that'll look a little different in each human life. It's immensely difficult. It's just the challenge of being human. And Aquinas and Aristotle are very helpful for helping us think about how to do those things. Thank you very much. I'll take questions for just a few minutes. There are no bad questions. If anyone has any questions. Yes, ma'am. Um, I just want to know what your thoughts are on the endurance of friendship. For example, if you're friends with someone and then you, uh, you want to be with them and then you discover that this terrible character flaw, even though they have I don't want to be with them anymore, for example. Yeah, so the question is about the endurance of friendship, especially if you discover a kind of a great flaw that emerges in a person's life. There's, that's a, an absolutely great question. The problem with answering it is there's so many different cases. Um, on the one hand, we could talk about the normal limitations of nature, where I think only in 
very particular circumstances, just by the constraints of nature, would we ordinarily want to see heroicism. So a case where we would want to ordinarily hope for heroicism. Now the heroic virtue is outside the need, okay? So think about the spouse who has the woman, let's say, marries a man, he faces catastrophic vocational failure in midlife, and as a result becomes deeply uh, alcoholic. And in that, in doing so, becomes very dysfunctional at the heart of the family. Okay. Well, for the sake of her vow to her husband and her love of herself, relationship with God, relationship with her husband, and her relationship with the children, and the good of the children, we would like to think that outside the mean, she could aim for the heroic good. If, however, we're just talking about that same man's relationship with, say, one of his previously you know, good friends, and the friend has several times tried to intervene with him and failed, the, the desire that, to counsel heroicism diminishes on the natural level. Now, on the supernatural level, in the life of charity, we can remain committed to the people for the sake of Christ, and we can want their good for the horizon of eternal life. And even when we don't have the conditions in which we can still exert friendship in a concrete way, we can still have the intention for it, and we can pray for their good. If you go back to Aristotle's three criteria, I, I can see the qualities of the other and want their good, but now the common life has been undermined because of a tragic flaw in the character of the other person. So you can still be at the level of the intention. The intention is not undermined. The realization is undermined because of the, the tragic flaw of the, of, of the person's life. Okay. So I, mean, I think those things happen fairly often. But in the Christian, on the philosophical level, we say we still intend the common life of you to have of some kind, some shared friendship. On the, on the deeper level, though, you hope eschatologically for common life with him, with God. And so you start, you may diminish your expectations in this life, but you, you keep up your hope for the person's reconciliation with God in the life to come. You know? Yes? Uh, Father, um, I know Aristotle also talks about equality and its role in, in friendship. Um, I'm wondering if Thomas brings any kind of insight which modifies um, Aristotle's vision of equality being a kind of condition for whole friendship um, and the ability to share life and to share um, one's own experience of life and so is something that charity can overcome or is there some kind of qualification added to this or uh, I'm just wondering if you can comment on that so the, like the relationship that's a great question so yeah so I mean I would say yes and no so so okay friendships of inequality for Aristotle or like the friendship between the um, father and the child, the parent and the child, they're not equals. But obviously the parents love the child very much, and in a way, by loving the child in a certain way, not reciprocally, they invite the child to eventually achieve maturity and become their friend as equals. Now that's not always easy for parents to accept that their child has an independence of them. But after the disillusionment of the parents comes, and they're often also the maybe rebellion, the, the, the assertion of autonomy comes from the children. 
there's eventually the possibility of real abiding friendship of equals. Um, students and teachers, if they share a common friendship in the pursuit of truth, are not in friendships of equality, strictly speaking. Uh, the, deep, the deeper problems are like when you really have profound differences of um, status. Now, Aristotle puts it, and it's not considered politically correct, but it's how he says it, the master-slave relationship, where you have a person who's just deeply dependent because they're of a lower social and economic and educational standing. Now, the Christian um, vision of universality is obviously more aggressive because everyone is made in the image of God. That's not just the truth of faith. It's truth that's actually of human nature. We're all like God by intellect and will. And so everyone can be appreciated in a way that's not marked by this Greco-Roman aristocratic limited, limited vision. And the Christian vision, in a way, even on a philosophical level, explodes the limitations of the ancient aristocratic <coughs> idea. And so there is a way in which in the realism of, of Christian love is a realism that every human being has, as I was saying before, something I can become relative to. That being said, the hierarchies are real. They're part of nature. And they do color or qualify how we are friends with others. And there are times when it's rather important. I mean, the parent who wants to treat their child as an equal can ruin their child. And we see a lot of instances where now the child's deliberative will is placed on the same level as their parents. So no discipline is possible out of over-exaggerated modern respect for the autonomy of the child. You're asking a five-year-old what they want to do as if they're your friend. It's not a service to the five-year-old. Um, this can be the case with students and teachers. Uh, it can also be the case with priests and laity. The priest isn't necessarily superior to the layperson in, in, in many, many respects, but the office of priesthood and the, the sacred goods exercised by the priest, the role, are objectively, in a way, uh, distinct, distinctive, because the priest exercises sacred authority in the confessional and in celebrating the Mass and preaching, and etc. And if the priest wants to be everybody's buddy on the same level, there's a way in which not only does that potentially deform the expreciation of the office, but it can endanger the priest because he doesn't seek stability in friendship with his true colleagues and equals who he needs to be held accountable to, as well as in being collegiality with, rather than seeking that collegiality with people who are outside his own status. So these are rather subtle questions. We need friendships of equality with the people who are closest to us in our common work and projects. Um, so spouses have to cultivate privileged, especially careful friendships that they maintain in fidelity. Um, partners in businesses have different relationships with each other that we maintain than relations with their employees. Uh, people in the church in their state of life and the religious life they have the primary relationships a friendship in the religious life rather than outside of it, so forth. All right, why don't I liberate you? But thank you so much for your questions and your attention, and uh, we'll, we can continue the conversation afterwards.